Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He's publishing a book on October 19th, 2021. The title of the book is My Journey, A Life in Quest for the Purpose of Life. His name is Irvin Laszlo, L-A-S-Z-L-O. And this will not be his first book. It'll actually be the 84th book, it seems like. He's written 83 books in 20, and they've been translated into 21 languages, as well as 400 research papers. And Mr. Laszlo has been twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He is the editor of the international periodical World Futures, the Journal of General Evolution, and he is the Chancellor-designate of the newly formed Global Shift University. He is also the founder and president of the Internet International Think Tanks, the Club of Budapest, and the General Evolution Research Group. And I'm just going to go through a few of his other books that he has written. Uh, one with this year with Marianne Williamson is titled The Immutable Laws of the Akashic Field, Universal Truths for a Better Life and a Better World. Also, Chaos Point 2012 and Beyond, Appointment with Destiny, published 2010. The Immortal Mind, Science and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain, 2014. Dawn of the Akashic Age, New Consciousness, Quantum Resonance, and the Future of the World, 2013. The Intelligence of the Cosmos, Why Are We Here? New Answers from the Frontiers of Science, with Jane Goodall writing the foreword. And Science and the Reenchantment of the Cosmos, The Rise of the Integral Vision of Reality, from 2006. So... He's written some other very, very fascinating books, but he's going to talk more about that. So, Mr. Laszlo, are you there? I'm here, yes, Mr. Ramsey. I look forward to chatting with you. Uh, likewise. So for people who may not have heard your background, can you, I mean, you, this is really your journey, your story of your, of your kind of your life during different, what you call re reincarnations. Um, can you talk about kind of your background and what led you to write this book, My Journey? Well, I really don't like to talk about myself, but I wrote this book, so I have to reply to that. Uh, I'd like it to, to be known. It's an intellectual autobiography. It's the idea that I, I'm tracing the development of my thinking, which is really centered on a single idea, sort of a one idea person in this lifetime, which is to find the meaning of living, of life. Why are we here? Yeah. It's a big question, and, right? So it's not a small question, but it's something that fascinated me from the very beginning. And so finally I got around to writing this book, which is segmented into three parts. I think my life is somehow, it falls into three parts. There's a common theme, the inquiry and the seeking of the meaning of life, but three different ways of pursuing it. And I call the first of these ways the incarnation, my incarnation as a musician, because I was born more or less like that. I was raised from an early childhood on to be a pianist, to be a musician. Nothing entered anybody's mind, including my mind, that I would do anything else than, than play the piano and give concerts and uh, be a concert pianist, in other words which I made a career in my early teens and mid-teens and, and, and 20s until the next phase came about, which I call, this one I call the incarnation. That is the reincarnation because an incarnation again in another form. The reason I talk about this in these terms is because the, there is not direct continuity on the surface level between these various phases. 
the deep continuity is in what I was seeking, what goes on in my mind, in my consciousness. But the actual conditions of, of through which I'm pursuing this, this aim are so different. So that in the second phase, for example, which is an academic phase, which is becoming a philosopher and uh, from, from switching over from being a musician, a philosopher and, and at Yale and, and uh, the state University of New York and Houston and other places. And that uh, is so different from the first that I couldn't very well imagine during that phase what I was, what I was doing, how I was living, why I was living the way I was living when I was a concert pianist looking for success on the concert stage, looking for fame. That was something completely different in my second life, second re in my actual reincarnation, except that the underlying aim was the same, trying to find why I'm here, you know. Is there a deeper meaning to that? And then there was a third phase. And this is Alcalfa reincarnation, because this moved again into the phase in which I'm now, and I have been maybe for 20 years or so, which is which I call the activist phase. It's not enough to, to find out, to, to learn more things about oneself and the world, not about enough to use word, to, your term to investigate. What, what we are, but it is you also have to do something with it and become aware, as nowadays you are very much aware, but it wasn't in it, in it still 20, 25 years ago, that we are in an emergency situation on this planet, that we really can't go on the way we have been going. This, a few people said so, I said so myself, but it was generally not known. So when this became, well, even before it became known, when I, when I encountered this idea of being in a transitory uh, emergency state or phase, then I switched over and left the, uh, the, the halls of Ivy, the university, joined the United Nations as director of research. Then I, I joined in the Club of Rome and then founded the Club of Budapest, did various activities which are all oriented toward not only understanding the world, but changing it, hopefully changing it for the better. And I'm still in that phase now. Right, so you're in your activist phase. You're remarkable because you were you had these great fellowships just based upon the uniqueness and merit of your writing, correct? So you, yes. I think it was your first book was Essential Society and Ontological Reconstruction, is that correct? Yes, yes. So you were picked up at Yale as a fellowship, then to SUNY. I mean, it's and then you were spent seven years at the UN. So yes, can you talk about those years where you developed your philosophy and how you have this unique? I mean, I would call it a unique, and, and also Stanislav Grof does. He writes your afterward, uh, your unique outlook, how you developed that philosophy before you became an activist. Well, partly reasoning. Partly intuition. I am very much in agreement with Einstein when he said that intuition is in some ways even more important than reason. I'm relying on that. I had intuitions of what I should look at, what the world may be like fundamentally and deep down. I had these intuitions while I was playing the piano, even to the extent that that was then the motivation of my switching over from piano to to the uh, to academic to academia, is because to the extent that I forgot what I was actually doing, playing and performing, I was so taken up with the uh, with the ideas that I'm pursuing. So 
this deep down I was always looking for the same thing, but it had expressed in different terms, manifested and, and pursued in different ways. So how did I change or why did I change? Is because I, from being a concert pianist, I felt and started inquiring into the meaning of life that it's not enough just to play the piano. It's a wonderful thing, yes, and it's a noble aspiration to bring music to people, but it's not enough, at least it was not enough for me. I wanted to go further, I wanted to find out, I'm a pianist, is that something that I really want to do? Is that my destination? And the answer I got was no. No, that is a good phase, but I, I, there's more to life. There's more that I need to find out in this life. And so I switched over there. To, to the academic world where I could pursue research. And as you say, indeed, when I was accepted at Yale, it was on the basis of my publications. I had no sheepskin on my wall, other than actually the music de degree, a concert, a concert a pianist degree from the Franz Liszt Academy in Budapest. But that certainly is not a qualification for entering a philosophy department at an Ivy League university. However, the chairman of the department at the time, Schroeder, they said it doesn't matter what kind of formal academic qualifications you have. You've written these books. These are things that you should be pursuing. And Yale gave me the possibility of meeting interesting people, specialists, scientists, great thinkers of many kinds. And I had the, taken the best use and made the best use of this opportunity that I could. And so a, a lot of a series of whole books then followed no longer playing the piano, but playing the keyboard of the typewriter, then of the computer. And the books that followed afterwards took me to the point where I felt that I have to share something more, not only understanding, but changing, do, being of service. I think that's perhaps a good term. I haven't used it so much during the time, but I'm coming to it more and more. Being of service, trying to do something that is useful because we are badly in need, and this is a conviction I have independently of my own, uh, own uh, career or, or life ways. We need badly relevant, useful ideas, concepts that orient us, that tells us how we could go about recovering that natural instinct for life, for flourishing, for striving, how we could become a more useful person not an abstract academician, not a, a, a musician who gives pleasure through his performance on the, on the instrument, but also being of service in providing ideas to which people can say, yes, I can understand that. That's something I can live with. I could, I could orient my life toward. And that's the kind of thing that I try to bring to people through my career. Yeah, and what did what did you learn? Like you had an experience at the UN and also with the Club of Rome, like you knew the top person through the Club of Rome and all the people there. What did you learn from that and how did you transform that knowledge into your own uh, think tank? Well, the Club of Rome started saying in the in the late 60s and early 70s already, it's in the big famous book of the Mr. Grossus published in 72, it started saying that there is a limit to the kind of growth that is current that at that time the economy and society in general was pursuing a quantitative growth, more of the same, but more and more and more. 
using more resources, generating more products, pro produ pro producing more waste at the same time. And uh, this was in a finite planet, this kind of growth was not possible. Now, this was relatively new in the late 60s, early 70s. I came to the conclusion on my own, and because I did through my lectures at Princeton University at the time, and Pache, the, the founder and uh, president of the Club of Rome, read some of the things that I was doing and said I should develop those ideas, which I did, then developed the ideas in which it's based not on mechanical forecasts, that's what the Club of Rome was doing at the time, showing computer modeling of world, world processes. I was trying to show how this accords with, with, with our instinctive thinking, how our own thinking, our own consciousness, I would now say, can actually influence and does influence the way we behave and therefore the way these, these great processes unfold. So from the, my period at Princeton, which was a, a long semester, came a book, A Strategy for the Future, The Systems Approach to World Order. That took me to the United Nations. The United Nations, as you say, I spent seven years as being a director of research at the Institute for Training and Research. And I learned a great deal there. I learned that it's not easy to make change in a, in a, in a political system whether it's national or international, even a system such as the United Nations, which is built on humanism, on, on, on advanced thinking. There is so much inertia built into the system that it's really not easy to get across. So as an independent uh, scholar, I have published, not as a, as, as a research uh, director person at, at the UN, but on my own, under my own name, I also published for the, for the Institute, some 12 books together with my collaborators. But my main books that I consider the most important are published under my own name, under my own aegis. And that meant that I learned that there is a, a way to try to influence thinking so that the thinking could ultimately influence acting. Directly acting on acting, it doesn't go. Right. And that's what led you to start the club of uh, your own club in Hungary, right? The club of Budapest. The difference between the club of Rome, first of all, I must say that I tried to bring this into the club of Rome. But even in an organization, avant-garde organization like that, there is a certain amount of conservative, conservativeness and inertia. And the hundred members, there's limited to hundred members, didn't all wish to move to change the orientation from a orientation of classical management, economic and social management, on resource use, on international relations, and so on, very important topics, but change this orientation towards shifting one's consciousness, shift, shifting one's ideas. And the Club of Budapest was founded with the idea that you bring in now the people who's, who, who can address our heart, our spirit, our consciousness. And so I started, the first, the first uh, member of the Club of Budapest was, of course, the president of Hungary, Ab Abraham Gönc, uh, who was himself a, a well-known literary figure, a translator of Shakespeare into Hungarian, and he, he then became president of Hungary. But he remained a great poet and, and, and thinker himself. 
that immediately the next member was the Dalai Lama. And that came about more or less uh, unexpectedly. I was it, uh, in India at the time. I was named uh, the, the chairman of the, of the Auroville Foundation. Auroville is, the, is this experimental city uh, created by, by Auro, uh, Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo. And so this uh, had, a, had a commission and they asked me to serve in that commission. I was at the time in India and the Dalai Lama was visiting nearby. I was near Pondicherry at the Auroville and he was in Madras, North Chennai. And I asked for an appointment and he granted me an appointment. He said only has a few minutes. He only spent three days, I think, in Chennai. And so he was, his, his palace was very full. I went anyway and I presented to him a project of making a manifesto on the new on the new consciousness on what i call the planetary consciousness his holiness got quite taken with this idea he asked me to read some of it i started reading it and ended up by cancelling his rest of his appointments for the day for the day from the early afternoon on and he, together with his secretaries they started drafting this manifesto we ended up at the end of the day with a good draft, which I then further polished and sent to him, and he got back. I got back from him. And that became the manifesto on the spirit of planetary consciousness, which was then discussed and adopted also in the presence of His Holiness in 1996 at the Academy of Sciences of Budapest. And that is a document I'm still proud of and did, delighted to have, have the opportunity of, of initiating it. But then the spirit of the Dalai Lama was became uh, the key element in it. In fact, really fascinating. And you also had some other well-known figures, Peter Ustinov, Vasilov Havel, who was the Czech prime minister, I believe, at one point, also, I think, a literary figure, too. So you had some, kind of these forward-thinking thinkers. In your kind of philosophy, I mean, kind of branching off from the Dalai Lama, you integrated some Eastern ideas as well, maybe that weren't as commonly looked at in Western philosophy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'm not a philosopher who specialized in, in studying Eastern thought. What I know about, I know, I greet, kind of, I welcome intuitively. Because it tells you what I think is the gist of Eastern philosophy, of traditional philosophy, is that our mind, our consciousness, our psyche, or however you call it, is deeper than what you think. It's not just a manager, but it's a source of information. It's a source of insight and intuition. And you must allow that source to come forth to influence our actions. So I think the whole idea of the Buddhist idea, for example, of mindfulness or also meditation, stopping the chatter of the surface brain and mind and allowing these deeper ideas to come into consciousness. That was my experience from music. It continued to be my experience as I was as I was carrying on in the academic world. Very unusual, I think, or perhaps not so unusual, but not often admitted. Much, many of my writings have reflected what came to me spontaneously and not simply rationally. And I would, I would think of a problem. I would, this would really intrigue me to the extent that I would think of it day and night. 
And when I allowed myself to, to relax, to, to just behold that problem and ask, and you just, what is it like? Often answers would start coming. And I would just then jot it down and it comes. I still have that experience. It's not really automatic writing, but it's influenced by something which is not me, not my rational self. It's, I still have it, it still happens. Sometimes when I speak, it happens. And most of the time when I write, when I pick up an idea, try to develop it, the words, the sentences seem to form themselves. So this, I'm very lucky in that, and I, and I just follow it gratefully and don't try to control it. But I acknowledge it that much of what I'm doing, thinking and acting, doesn't come from me. It comes from a higher source or a deeper source, as you like. Right. And you kind of have a, a view of the universe as... Um kind of alive, like you believe that every, uh, the kind of evolutionary push, all of us is kind of coming from an intelligent source. Can you kind of expand on your concept of the cosmos and how, how human beings exist within this universal realm? Well, what strikes me is that the concept, which was so dominant in natural science and physics up till about 10, 20 years ago, namely that the universe is the result of a series of random interactions. Now, when we started calculating what random interactions can actually produce in a complex field, such as the universal field, the, the, the quantum field, it turned out that there's no way random interactions could have produced this remarkable coherent universe, which is coherent underneath, despite of the other surface noise, how it could have produced that in the allotted time, time of 18.3 billion years versus the Big Bang. We believe that these processes of evolution in the universe started then. Probably the universe as we know it started then. There was something before, but we cannot grasp what it was, at least not rationally. But then a process started and that process took, took, uh, took form more and more until in such a way that it created the universe that we now inhabit and ourselves in the universe. No way that we could have evolved is our genetic constitution, our cellular constitution, our, our quantum interactions in our body, in our brain, and with our, with our environment. No way we could have evolved in the space of 13.8 billion years with random interactions. So what is the bottom line? The bottom line is that this universe has something that orients it, something that guides it, very much of a heresy. It seems to go against the, the, the vein in, uh, in natural science, which claimed that the universe creates itself. There's nothing else. All right, I, I allow that the universe creates itself, but the universe that creates itself is not a random universe. It's already an informed universe. What is it informed by? You can call it the, the, the higher spirit. You can call it the, the Tao. You can call it the, the, the Jehovah. Whatever name you give it in the various spiritual traditions, the fact is that this is not just, as, this, as the positivist philosophers used to say, not just one darn thing after another. This universe has an orientation, has a direction. And that direction is which we call evolution, not just biological evolution, it's cosmic evolution. It's evolution is from the universal field, 
of chaos toward increasing coherence, increasing interactions, increasingly articulated interactions, including the evolution of mind and brain, and ultimately what we call consciousness. So it's a remarkable universe. I fully agree with Einstein who said there are two ways to live your life, either as if everything is a miracle or as if nothing is. I say, yes, we can live our life as if everything is a miracle because everything is. And you uh, emphasize in your book and your writings the interconnectedness of human beings and even, I mean, it's kind of like us talking, you're in Italy, I'm in California, the interconnectedness of humanity on a spiritual, psychological level. Can you expand on that? One of the great, almost most amazing findings in the new sciences, the new physics, in quantum physics, is that what happens in one point in space and time is not limited to that point. What happens is so intricately, intrinsically, and inherently connected with other points that the other points are not just an effect of what's happening here. They also happen there simultaneously. So what's happening here is also there. What happens today was here yesterday, and it will be here tomorrow. Nothing disappears, and nothing is limited to here and now. This is a non-local universe. That's the term that is most widely used. It's a non-local interconnected universe. Where through a field, we must assume that there is something underlying it, because in science, if we have several things acting simultaneously in harmony, not just by chance, but by some form of connection, we consider that connection a field. There's a field, there's an information field, which we can give it different names, a name that I've started using because I found that it very much resonates with people. It's, they call it the Akashic, the Akashic field. Akash. Because the Akasha is discovered you know, 5,000 years ago, person by the Hindu seers. It has a deeper dimension in which everything is already given. Everything unfolds from there. A very, very contemporary notion, which is that, that, that old already, actually. So, again, through intuition. Now we are rediscovering it through our rational investigations. So basically, yes, there is something. Call it a divine spark. Call it a life force. Call it a, an attractor, which is a term I like to use. A homotropic, an attractor orienting these processes, biasing the processes, if you like, toward increasing coherence, increasing interaction, and, and integrity. Wholeness is being created. We are wholes. The, the biosphere is a whole. The planet is, is a whole. This universe is a whole in the sense that all things interact in it and all things together create what there is, that enormously complex something, which is not just an aggregate or a heap. It is something which interacts, which connects, and which maintains itself and which evolves. We are part of this evolution. That's the great insight, I think. That's the most inspirational thing I can think of. We are an element in evolution. And being a conscious element, we have this unique chance that we, that we have to pick up as our mandate, as our mission, to use our consciousness to understand this interactive evolutionary process and start to try to steer it so that it avoids negative dead ends, moves toward integration, 
most, most of high and higher levels of wholeness. We badly need that kind of reorientation because right now, the past couple of decades on this earth, humanity has been moving in a very different direction, not towards wholeness, but towards fragmentation. Yeah, I totally agree with that. What would you recommend, I mean, in trying to move towards this wholeness or reintegration, how, what would you recommend uh, as a for kind of, uh, what would bring about that global change? <clears throat> Recognize who you are. I mean, this is, you know, Dalai Lama said that, the, 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 the Oracle at Delphi said that, uh, Socrates said that. I mean, it's easier said than done, of course. But deep down, we are not just an assembly of, of cells, a biochemical machine. We are far more than that because the life itself is far more than that. And the universe as a whole is far more than that. So recognize who we are and try to live up to it. Be inspired by the fact that you, you and I, we, everyone around us is a an element of the big wave of evolution unfolding in us and around us. And what's outside is also in us. This is a fractal process, you know, in a fractal system, the, it repeats the dynamics that is on one level repeats on other levels. And they all together bring the system, what it is, make it into what it is. So this, uh, this recognition is what we need it seems to me uh, what the French call the prise de conscience, you know, finally becoming conscious. You know. Today we talk about awakening and waking up. We need that reconsideration. We are not part of a mechanical universe. We are not just assemblies of matter, chemical and biological matter. We are an oriented and orienting system. We are informed, David Bohm, the great uh, Quantum scientist says information in the effective sense is to be spelled with a hyphen. Information, it's something that forms. That something is what the great religions call the divine will or the divine spark. But the Eastern religions call the Tao. You can have as many names as their traditional systems. But it's more than randomness, more than just interactions one after another. It's a highly oriented process, an amazing process a mysterious process that we cannot seize, cannot, cannot stop enough to admire and to be a part of, to, to align ourselves with it. Align ourselves is it when we recognize that we belong together and we recognize that the other around us is not other, it's not different from us, it is also us. And together we can build a better world. That is the, actually the subtitle of my, of my new book on the upshift Together we can build a better world. And because I, this is, to me, is the key idea, the key recognition. You ask what it is that I would say people should, should, should do, recognize, recognize who you are. As the Oracle at Delphi says, who you are. You are a part of a great evolutionary unfolding. It went off the track in humanity with this tremendous chasing after, after wealth and energy and power. Now we have to come back to really to building a world that is equilibrated that allows all its elements to unfold because coherence, harmony, as the ancient thinking says, knew it already, is very much a basic element of 
the reality of the universe. He has to right. come back to them, to know that, and then you become better persons and a better architects, the real architects of a new world. Yeah, if I mean for certain, I would say that right now, at least in the states, very inharmonious uh, situation among people. A lot of dualistic thinking and seeing everybody else as the other. It's a very unhealthy kind of sociological environment. Um, can you talk a little bit about Upshift, the book that's coming out early 2022, and uh, tell people when that'll be out as well? This one, again, this book is out October 19th, 2021. Can you talk about Upshift? Yeah, the Upshift is, is meant to be a corrective medium. A corrective medium by recognizing that we can create a better world. I've come across this notion, you know, when you talk about young people, I'm talking to young people, that uh, just today I was talking to the uh, crowd, university crowd in Seoul, Korea, through the internet, of course. Uh, and it's a very widespread belief that we can understand a lot of what goes on now, but we don't really understand what's going on in the future. How we can build a better world? What will be the nature of a better world? Of course, you can always go to, to religion, to spirituality, but what if it's our rational mind? How can we grasp something that is better, a, a more striving nature, a striving world? And the upshift is meant to show that the key to that is in us and that is in this deeper tendency or tropism toward joining into coherent wholes. And if you allow the tendency to, to unfold, then it will direct directions. Then our morality changes. Then our, 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 our psychology changes. We don't just simply fight for survival in an unfriendly jungle, in a threatening environment. Then we begin to see that all of nature around us is part of us that we, each other, we complete and complement each other underneath it all. Above, perhaps we fight, we kill, we do awful things to nature, to the planet, but underneath it, there is still a spark and we have to return to that spark. I've written this in more detail in a book that was published about a year ago, or perhaps a little, little less, called Reconnecting to the Source. We have to reconnect and the source is nature. The source is the universe, and the source is a harmonious whole to which we have forgotten, which we have been unaligned. We have, we have divorced ourselves from it. It's time to get back to it. Agreed. And where is the best place to get my journey, my a life in quest of the purpose of life? Do you pr prefer Amazon? Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website. Yes, ervilaslo.com, laslowinstitute.com. And there is a special site, ervilaslobooks.com. All of these list my books, uh, especially the last one just is concentrated on that. Now, this newest book, the, including the My Journey, uh, uh, My Journey will be published later in October. The Upshift will be published at the end of January or early February. But the problems don't go away. I think, if anything, they, they deepen. The needs for this kind of thinking, I think, is becoming more and more clear to people. I try to be relevant and useful. I try to be of service. That's why I'm publishing these things. I have a currently a little book that I recommend for people, especially for young people, which is called The Wisdom Principles. It's published by St. Martin's Press, Macmillan. 
and it's, it will be available as of the 28th of September. You can already order it and you can see a, a description of it on Amazon. All these books, by the way, are available through Amazon and as well as through the publishers, through Barnes and Noble and many other places. Right. So there's your website right there, Irvin Laszlo. Yes. And, and people exactly. can contact you there too. If they have any questions or anything, they can send you an email through that. Is that correct? Yes, within limits. If, if I get right. more than 100 emails a day, then I can't handle it. But I, I try to do my best. Right. And again, that's Irvin Laszlo Books, E R V I N L A S Z L O B O O K S dot com. So people can go check that out there. So many books, tons of information, great knowledge, incredible interview. Thank you so much. And again, the title of the book that will be coming out in October 19th, 2021 is My Journey, A Life in Quest for the Purpose of Life by Erwin Laszlo. Thank you so much. Thank you indeed for investigating into me. I hope you came up with something that's meaningful to you. Oh, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Thank, Thank you. Stay, th stay there. Thank you very much. Stay there. I'm going to end the podcast. Okay.